Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Roland Clark, and it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Grant Harwood, the author of Romania's Holy War, Soldiers, Motivation, and the Holocaust, which came out with Cornell University Press on November 15, 2021. Grant earned his PhD from Texas A&M University in 2018, and he's currently working as a historian at the Center of History and Heritage of the U.S. Army Medical Department. Although I understand that he's moving to the U.S. Army Center of Military History in Washington, D.C. in the new year. I've been having a read of Romania's Holy War, and it's a fascinating piece of work. It's extensively researched with material from the archives of the U.S. Holocaust Museum and from seven different archives in Romania, some of which have never been used by American historians before. Grant, can you tell us how a nice boy from Fountain Valley, California, came to be sifting through old documents in the Romanian military archives in Petesht. Oh, I'll be glad to. But before I do, I just have to give a little disclaimer uh, that the views and information uh, presented by myself are my own and do not represent the official position of the U.S. Army, the U.S. Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Uh, With that out of the way, um, how I got from California to uh, Romania is... uh, Not the most straightforward, but um, I think it goes back to a love of history that began um, as a very young child. Um, I was very close with my grandfather, uh, my grandpa Neil, who was a uh, sailor in the 1930s. And he used to talk about his experience. Um, He didn't actually have to serve overseas during World War II, but he showed me like books about his ship, the USS Lexington which fought at the Battle of Coral Sea and was sunk. And also I these books by Robert Ballard about the discovery of the Titanic, you know, uh, in, and the discovery of the Bismarck, the wrecks under the ocean by him in like the, uh, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. And I think something within that made it. So I was always interested in history. I developed a, like a deep and abiding love and interest for history, and especially in the Second World War. So we fast forward a little bit, and um, I was then, uh, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I was, you know, put in my mission papers and was called to Romania and served there from 2005 to 2007, uh, interrupting my studies at Brigham Young University after my freshman year. And that's basically my first time I even really kind of... um, kind of Romania entered into my psyche. I mean, before then, I don't even know if I had made much connection even with Dracula. You know, Dracula is associated with Transylvania. And, you know, I didn't realize, you know, Transylvania is part of like a real place in a real country. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I think it's that, you know, you know, I, I learned the language while I was there for two years, learned to love the people, um, you know, visit, you know, lived in you know, a lot of different places during that time. And when I came back, I was already a history major at Brigham Young University. And it was just kind of a no-brainer to, you know, be like, hey, I have this new language skill, um, this new, you know, 
uh, enthusiasm for this country and I want to study its history and I can study the Second World War history. And then as I, got, I dug a little deeper, I realized that the his, his historiography is just wide open, especially in um, the English speaking world, that almost nothing's written on it on Romania during the during the war in general, much less specifically, specifically the army. Uh, and so that's when I uh, got into a program first at the University of Edinburgh uh, for my master's in um, uh, the Second World War in Europe. And that just kind of brought me down to the research that I'm doing now. I started off doing research into German stereotypes of the Romanian army, but then that's grown into this new project. Um, and I understand you spent a long time talking to um, veterans before you started writing this book. Yeah. And then that is actually one of the reasons why I got into this specific subject. Cause as I was um, researching for my master's um, at Edinburgh, I, I decided that one of the things I wanted to do was talk to veterans. As, as looking at the German stereotypes, I wanted to get, you know, uh, understanding about actually the Romanian lens eventually. Right. And um, I approached um, the, the, uh, uh, National Association of Veterans in, in uh, first in Bucharest at their you know headquarters, and uh, talked to several uh, int- uh, people there, including um, General Dragnea, which was really interesting. He he was somebody who ended up fighting on both sides during the war. He joined the uh, Tudor Varamorescu division, which was a kind of uh, a communist, a pro-communist you know Romanian division they created from recruiting prisoners of war. Yeah, for, uh, after Stalingrad, and he then was in the, uh, you know, the Romanian Communist, uh, the People's Army. Um, but it was in a kind of, um, and this is very early on, you know, in my master's research. And my idea was that after I talked about this, wrote my master's re- uh, thesis, that I would then go on to talk about kind of, I thought the the talk about the um, kind of soldier experience, right? Kind of a social history of the army, but I was, and I wasn't really focused on motivation yet, but it was speaking with some of these veterans and especially it was almost in these very first interviews. Um, and one of the first ones, it's at the beginning of my book where I talked with um, uh, Theodor Halik. He was a veteran of the Eastern front. Uh, and then Julio Dobrin, who was a veteran of what they called the Western front, right? When they switched sides and they, it was interesting because you're not supposed to, really interview multiple people at once. Um, but sometimes that happened. And this is one time where I'm really glad that it did because I, this dynamic developed between the two of them with um, Dobrin, who was, you know, fought, who was younger and he, he was part of the kind of anti-fascist period. He was trying to give this gloss and, you know, talk about how they, you know, they never stole any food from locals and, and everything while Holly was more up front and he was somebody who had fought from 41 all the way until him being captured at, uh, at Stalingrad. And he was like, yeah, we, we, you know, we pillaged villages and took what we needed. And he also then they brought up, I didn't even have need. I started, when I started asking about the Holocaust, he then said, Hey, this is something that we can't blame the Germans for. And it was this discussion that, you know, and even Dobrin then agreed like, yes, you know, you know, the Jews, you know, they, they, you know, abused us in 1940. And so we had a grudge to settle. And it was this 
this kind of discussion and further discussions at this that I realized, wait a minute, I need to switch my focus from kind of just the general experience to like why these guys are fighting because in the, the literature and the secondary literature, these are supposed to be, you know, unmotivated men. And then I get this very ideological um, uh, kind of explanation for the war that kind of, that, that, that was at contrast with that. So if you pick up most history books about the Romanian army in the second world war, people will tell you that the Romanians, they weren't really excited about fighting with the Germans, but they wanted two things. One is they wanted to get Bessarabia and Bukovina back. And so they wanted to invade Russia, the Soviet Union. And they also wanted to get hung, um, Transylvania back. So they needed to be friends with Hitler. And this is why they allied with Hitler. But after really after they'd conquered Bessarabia and Bukovina, they were fairly reluctant allies of the Germans. And in your book, you challenge that quite strongly. Um, can you explain how and why? Well, so it kind of come out of this where, you know, as you're saying, there's this attitude that they were very narrow. Their motivation was very narrow, uh, just like nationalism, just regaining territory. Um, they're often say, they're uh, often depicted as being unideological or lacking ideology, um, especially the Germans. German generals say this later. And it was just as I was looking at these these veterans, just kind of like the basic facts didn't seem to line up with that. Um, you know, military facts, the fact that you have Romania contribute more soldiers than almost any other army on the uh, Allied, you know, Axis army that's allied to Nazi Germany, you know, twice as many as the Italians or the Hungarians. Um, the Finns temporarily send more troops, but, if, you know, after 1941, um, the Finns kind of demobilize and keep the minimum amount. And the Finns stay right near their border, whereas the Romanians, they go all the way to Stalingrad, the Caucasus, and they fight for three years. And then addition, in addition to this, I have been taking classes on the Holocaust and doing um, and, and various research seminars and fellowships and studying that and seeing how much soldiers participated in that. I realized, like, this these basic facts kind of push against this idea that they're a reluctant ally. And it really made me think we need to turn on this head because this old view is this kind of real politique, this kind of very like almost cynical view of like we are forced, like there was, this is the only option was to join um, the, the Nazis. And then we only took what we needed but when you actually get into the basic facts, you realize there's something more complex going on here. And these interviews with these veterans, you know, kind of confirmed that. So I started digging into more of these uh, memoir literature, you know, uh, uh, soldiers like writing actual journals during the war. What are they saying at the time? And looking at propaganda, like actually trying to take that propaganda seriously. Like what is the kind of the information was, you know, is, and, it, that's being um, you know fed to a lot of these guys through these publications, and then kind of most importantly integrating the whole wide ranging uh, uh, exploding kind of Holocaust research that was coming out, showing how much was going on in the 1920s, 1930s of radicalizing Romanian society. Um, that shows us that there's actually motivation for more than just nationalism, but also religion, anti-Semitism, of course, anti-communism, 
uh, even even fascism, and I think really importantly, there's that mixture that of anti of anti-Semitism and anti-communism that creates that myth of Judeo-Bolshevism that is is it is a very powerful if um, toxic ideology that should be remembered should be understood and enabled to remembered in order to understand why remaining soldiers fought. One thing I found really interesting about this book was, whereas a lot of books, they focus on like the generals or like the leader of Romania, General Ion Antonescu, um, you're actually very interested in rank and file soldiers and trying to get into their heads and trying to understand what their experiences were. I remember years ago when I was a student, I once told one of my professors that I wanted to write a book, an essay exploring why soldiers in such and such a war wanted to fight. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, these guys are conscripts, so their motivations don't matter. They fought because they had to. Isn't that the same in Romania? What would you say to him? Well, I would say to him that um, I think that's an oversimplification, a gross oversimplification of of uh, why soldiers fight even in a mass conscript army. And I'd actually argue even that the transition to mass conscript uh, armies actually makes motivation and understanding soldiers' motivation even more important, not less important. Uh, because, you know, going back to the French, before the French Revolution, you have these smaller professional armies um, that you're able to train, become very professional. Um, once you have the French Revolution with the levée en masse, where you all of a sudden you're bringing in all of society and requiring them to fight, that is a huge change. And all of a sudden you have a, a lot more soldiers who aren't always as, they're not professionals, they're not always trained, which means that they need to be motivated. Um, and we, you know, as I point out, there's, there's different types of motiva- motivation. So like kind of breaking it down a little bit is uh, to look at this is like that initial motivation, right? Why do soldiers, you know, actually report for duty, right? If you're talking about these conscripts, right? you know, they get a draft notice, but, you know, it's, it's very simplistic to say, oh, you get a draft notice and you go, right? Because, you know, we know that there's all kinds of different choices. They can make draft avoidance, you know, try to find a way out and get an exemption, you know, bribe somebody to classify them as, you know, you know, unsuitable, whether for health or for work reasons. You have draft dodging and completely, you know, just not turning up and, hiding out, um, even like we have, you know, draft riots. And I mean, you know, that, you know, in the civil war, you have massive draft riots in the North. Uh, you know, if you look at the French revolution, you actually have the Vendee, which is basically an entire, um, you know, part of, you know, Brittany, the entire part of France revolts against the new government and they have to fight a, uh, a brutal guerrilla warfare. Right. I mean, that's what that's, you know, bit conscription causes, and even in, in, you know, by the First World War, you're going to see there, you know, in the Second World War, there are still times when, so, you know, people, you know, kind of reject where it's like Slovakia. There is a partisan movement uh, that develops in part because people don't want to serve in Bulgaria. And in Vichy, France, it's very clearly that lots of lots of young men, they start joining the resistance in 43, 44, because they don't want to be drafted to go work in, in Germany. It's, slightly different um, situation, but there are these other options. And it's very interesting to point out during Romania and World War II, there are no draft riots, right? There, there is no mass, you know, um, uh, draft dodging, like in maybe the United States during the civil war, 
uh, I'm sorry, not the Civil War, the Vietnam War, that we kind of have this idea of uh, moving forward is um, like sustaining motivation, right? This is the motivation of, you know, remaining in the army, basically putting up with, you know, bad food or uh, bad officers or, you know, kind of just, the you know, all that kind of, you know, the misery of marching and all the non-combat kind of stuff afterwards, after, you know, and once again, soldiers don't always have to put up with this, you know, they can, they can, uh, strike their officers they can get you know put in the brig they can um go absent without leave they can you know and the most extreme cases they can desert you know either to the rear or to the enemy you know and 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 so and then lastly combat motivation i want to stress this right that once again uh during the 19th century you know this is becoming more and more important this is the focus point all right of armies of how do we get men to fight to risk their lives in battle, to advance rather than to retreat. Um, and this becomes more important because there's a f- multiple revolutions, right? Uh, especially the, you know, the Industrial Revolution and the Second Industrial Revolution. And that creates um, more and more effective uh, firepower um, on the battlefield, right? And so if you have more and more deadlier, you know, guns, um, you, know, you know, high explosive shells, you know, rifles, eventually machine guns, you have to spread your men out more and more. Uh, uh, And this means that an officer can't watch everybody and enforce, you know, that everybody has to follow him and do his, you know, you have to rely on those soldiers to make that decision. Um, And there's plenty of examples, you know, even in, in Romania, there's certain times when there's during the Second World War, let's say at the Battle of Odessa, there's reports where the soldiers are getting, de- you know, demoralized, and officers would jump up to lead a charge, and the soldiers won't follow, right? So, shirking one's duty, right, is is something like that in combat, where you know you can just hide out, you know, you you can't avoid officers and avoid any kind of punishment like that. So, motivation, you know, and and this has actually triggered a, a major study, especially in the United States. You know, since World War One, World War Two, there's actually been a lot of military historians f- focusing on why do soldiers fight, and a lot of this is you know pushed by the army itself because they want to understand what motivates men. And there was actually a very famous book um, after World War Two by S. L. A. Marshall that claimed you know very few soldiers actually did the fighting, and you know which is it's still controversial today. But this shows how important this is that you can't just rely on oh you've been drafted you're going to fight. And then finally, um, I add to this kind of tripartite definition of, of motivation of John Lynn about initial sustaining and combat. I add um, another form of motivation, which is atrocity motivation. And I think even more so than the others, this really kind of, um, it really depends on the soldier's right to decide because you might find orders to shoot, to commit mass reprisals, to execute you know, supposed fifth columnist, but you'll never find orders saying to rape and pillage, right? Um, so these other atrocities that are associated with, uh, you know, mass reprisals, you know, executions, those aren't ordered. Those are initiatives by soldiers themselves or by officers, right? Whether to like, you know, beat up the victims or not, or decide not to shoot certain people, to, to steal their goods, to rape the women. Those are all things that are really left up to 
a lot a lot of times the individuals are small groups rather than being forced on them. And so I think, you know, you know, that's what, you know, to answer that professor, right, that just because you're conscripted doesn't mean you lose your agency. Doesn't mean there's still not a lot of choices and decisions uh, that soldiers can still make, even within within uniform and in a institution um, that can coerce you to do certain things. That there is that threat of being punished for not following orders, but there's still so much initiative that comes down to motivation. And that that idea of atrocity motivation just reminds you that war is such a horrible thing, uh, and. <laughs> So people would have to be pretty highly motivated to engage in it um, at that level and those sorts of atrocities that you're yeah, describing. And the fact is that soldiers are not trained to commit atrocities, right? There is no, you know, as part of training, you get marksmanship, or if you're an artilleryman, you learn how to fire artillery and do mathematics, or you're a medic, you learn how to treat, you know, wounded. The army does not specifically, um, you know, train you to murder and rape and pillage. So once again, like focusing on that. And so, you know, this is, there's some really good examples, right? I mentioned that like kind of the dog that didn't bark, you know, there's never any draft riots in Romania. There's actually some interesting like reports of hunger strikes by soldiers and refusals to board trains in 1940 when morale is kind of low before they get into the war. Um, I think there's some really in my book, there's some other really contract, uh, uh, concrete examples of this, of, uh, you know, there's a first Lieutenant Nikolai Dan, right? He decides to try to shield Jews for a little bit when they enter a village, right? He kind of tries to, you know, he, he, he takes them away from a, a woman with her, her small child from a, 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 a corporal, right? Who's lower ranking than him. And that corporal challenged his authority, right? You know, he, he was saying, you know, he wanted to take these Jews to be um, sorted and executed. And this, you know, this uh, officer's first lieutenant, you know, he was a reservist. So he kind of had this, you know, he was he was a bit more hesitant and wanted to take pity on this woman. He actually ends up, you know, protecting a couple more until his his um, superior officer shows up. And, you know, instead of, you know, really, you know, trying to protect them and he's already kind of being seen as an outsider, you know, he surrenders them. And when he shows remorse and doesn't actually go to see what happens there's another officer that says, what are you like a Jew yourself? Like you must be a Jew, right? If you care about these Jews and threatens to shoot him. So there's really interesting dynamics going on there and you know, where it's atrocity. And then a good example, some a combat motivation from my book. There's a, a major Vasily uh, Skrnech. He talks about a uh, private who was a former officer reduced in ranks who with, an, with another one decides to stay behind and fight back you know, down to fighting with like bayonet and his like hand to hand and teeth to delay the enemy during a uh, uh, Soviet counterattack at Sevastopol, allowing the rest of uh, the squad uh, to escape. You know, so those are the kinds of like decisions that soldiers are still taking. You know, Skarnich didn't order this guy to stay behind, right? And then and his compatriot, those two guys made that decision, and and and. Uh, and sacrifice their lives for, for the rest of the men. And so I think there's lots and lots of examples of that in, within my book that try to illustrate that, whether it's in combat, whether it's, you know, you know, it, you know, signing up, whether it's, you know, uh, committing atrocities or just enduring, you know, bad food, there's a lot of agency, a lot of decisions that are all based on 
uh, motivation and morale of these soldiers. This is fascinating. So you've you've mentioned anti-Semitic propaganda that the Romanian state did for 20 years um, and Romanian fascist movements were doing and uh, army newspapers and speeches and sermons by priests. Did they discipline soldiers too? Was that like negative motivation as well? Yeah, so the Romanian army, I mean, every military retains uh, a coercive element, right? I mean, there is always that threat, but every army has different um, kind of levels. Although overall, um, since the French Revolution, you know, coercion, you know, corporal punishment is not the primary means of getting soldiers to fight, you know. Uh, There's uh, kind of... There's normative factors. These are like psychological or symbolic reasons for soldiers to fight. And since the French Revolution, that's come down to kind of the nation, right? You're fighting for this abstract idea of the nation. And and also, as as time went on, other abstract ideas, whether it's like I'm talking about here, religion, um, anti-Semitism, anti-communism, these are these abstract ideologies that these are the main reasons soldiers fight. But there's still also remuneration. Soldiers still get paid. Um, and in the context of the Second World War, soldiers could even use atrocities to uh, benefit themselves, right? To loot, to steal. Um, but in general, you know, the, well, you know, there, it, remuneration is very low officially because, you, you know, an average soldier doesn't make much money in a mass conscript army. And then there's coercion, right? That's kind of the third interest. Well, and and then there's self-interest, um, which we'll talk about. But, you know, soldiers, you know, fight or flight, you know, am I going to do this to myself? But coercion in the Romanian army actually remain, remained fairly high um, in comparison to other armies in that um, it actually had gotten rid of corporal punishment in during, after the First World War. But it was reintroduced um, fairly early on in i think august or like late august early september of 1941 corporal punishment is reintroduced into the romanian army so they actually still have flogging um but it's really interesting that they reintroduced this with the caveat that it should only be done in like very unusual extreme circumstances you shouldn't flog soldiers for just any kind of crime and that officers definitely shouldn't just be beating soldiers unofficially Right. Even though there are reports of like soldiers like uh, breaking the jaws of a soldier, you know, officers breaking a soldier's jaw. But if you do that, officers will can and will be punished. Um, But so there is. But it is interesting that, you know, and that Romanian army is still practicing this corporal punishment. Um, And it's it's interesting. It's it's kind of hypocritical that the Germans often point this out as a show. Oh, look how badly they're motivated. They still they still do. flogging whereas the germans are willing and ready and willing to shoot soldiers especially as the war goes on you know in the tens of thousands and yes the romanian army was willing to shoot soldiers um but not in the same they for you know they still carried out capital punishment i mean the u.s army only executed one soldier for desertion during world war ii whereas the romanian army um shot hundreds um but and the you know the red army and the german army are just very murderous to their own men. Their discipline, uh, what Omar Bartov caused the perver- perversion of discipline, leads to you know the hangings or executions of you know tens of thousands of German soldiers 
and then in the in the very notoriously right the red army had uh you know shot soldiers even for just losing a battle not even necessarily you know uh, for cowardice so it is important to remember you know and that's something i do bring up and discuss that there is this coercive element within the Romanian army um it's not all you but once again you can't force soldiers to fight through that um solely through coercion in these mass conscript armies there's just too many people um to try to do that and so the Romanian army it shoots enough men kind of to keep that threat alive kind of as in the back of soldiers' heads, but it's not kind of as murderous as the, you know, the, the Red Army or the German Army, but it's also not as, you know, kind of, it's not like the U.S. Army, or the British Army that hardly shoots any soldiers. Really interesting, just to add on, is the idea that of rehabilitation that the Romanian Army develops, um, because after the after 1941, they've got some soldiers that are kicking their heels and. Uh, military prisons um so mostly for like you know going AWOL you know absent without leave or deserting um or being judged you know for pillaging or theft um and they decide you know because the war is continuing they still need these soldiers and they decide to retrain them send them to a camp in um Sarata in southern Bessarabia and so at the Sarata training camp they get retrained and um, formed into rehabilitation battalions. They've actually are released on their own recognizance. So their sentences are suspended. They're released for 10 days and they have 10 days to get to and report to this training camp. Um, and the interesting thing is that something like 90, 95% show up. Um, and by the end of the two months training, there's still something like 80% of the soldiers are still there they had, you know, they haven't been sent back because they've deserted too many times or escaped, you know, from the camp. And uh, they actually perform fairly well on uh, the Eastern Front. Um, and there's also very interestingly, this is also going on on a kind of a onesie, twosies, threesies uh, scale um, where on the front. Uh, so the the soldiers being trained at Sarata are kind of being pulled from jails in Romania itself. Whereas on the front, uh, which is defined as east of the Dniester River, those soldiers are sent to, are sent and kind of retrained, and they're sent back as replacements. So you might have two men show up to a mountain battalion or something like that, who are these rehabilitation guys who are kind of pushed into a new unit in twos and threes rather than you know an entire battalion like the uh, as or as organized in Sarata. And the really interesting thing for me is that. This kind of worked, and I think it shows once again there is still enough motivation uh, for a lot of these soldiers, um, you know, belief in the cause um, and the, that they might be able to win at least until you know later in the war. That these are fairly effective ways of getting soldiers who might have some, who you know have been you know set to court martial back in the front lines, which is what the Romanian army desperately needs as the casualties mount. So you've convinced me that Romanian soldiers are motivated to sign up and to fight and to commit atrocities, um, but were they any good at it? Like most books you read about Romanian army in the Second World War, they don't rate it very highly compared to some of the other big armies of the war. Is that fair, do you think? 
Um, yes and no. Um, when I when I started writing my master's the- uh, thesis, looking at German stereotypes, I kind of started out as the idea of like, were the Romanians as bad as the Germans said? That was kind of, you know, some of where that started. And having delved into things, in the, to a certain extent, the the German evaluation of the Romanian army is fairly accurate about poor training, um, the leadership not being as good as in the German army, uh, you know, officers, you know, not being quite as competent. But at the same time, um, the German army, the German reports also say that they can be, the officers are competent enough to, to count on them to do what's needed. Um, and I would also argue that um, experience can make up for training. And so some, for certain Romanian units, um, they could get more experienced. You know, as, I think in 1942, you probably had some, the Romanian army gotten pretty good at fighting. Um, you know, it kind of had learned some tough lessons on battlefields, you know, in 1941. Um, set, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that was through, you know, heavy casualties. Um, but there is a learning curve. Um, and so I think, in, you know, it, that it be, does become more effective. And, um, uh, you know, there's also, you know, uh, the fact that there's different units that are to more or less, uh, they have more, there are more or less elite. So there's mountain units, cavalry units that have more training, um, and, and better training than let's say the average infantry, um, unit. And so, and even the, the Germans, you know, often will say the rain army is not that good. Oh, except for the mountain units and the cavalry, the cavalry units. Um, and so even the Germans kind of value these, uh, the, you know, the mountain corps and the cavalry corps, and they make a really big, important contribution. Um, but there's, and there's a certain thing, there's a certain amount of, uh, there's a certain fact that Romania was a smaller, poorer country um, that had little industry and a small middle class of professionals. So there's certain limitations to the Romanian army just because they can't produce this, the weapons in the numbers and they can't obtain them from the Germans. You know, uh, these war-winning weapons from World War II, tanks, anti-tank guns, uh, motorized vehicles, uh, airplanes, uh, heavy artillery. So even if you have the best trained soldiers, right, if you don't have those kind of weapons, it doesn't matter. Um, so and although the Germans tended to chalk this up not to only the fact that the Romanians lack material, but they say that the Romanians lack will, especially in basic and citing bogus racial theories, you know, kind of these are Balkan, Latin, decadent types. And that's why, you know, they are so frightened of the Russians. When in reality, it's the fact that the Romanians, you know, lack anti-tank guns. And they're so, <laughs> you know, like you, no matter how brave you are, no matter how skilled you are, if, if, if you don't have the weapons, it doesn't matter. So I would say, yeah, the Romanian army is not as effective, but I, it ends up surprising the Germans. I think a lot of this is because some of this motivation made up for its weaknesses, especially in 1941, 1942, when the Red Army is weaker and weakened by the fighting. The Red Army actually is even becomes even less well-trained. It takes such huge casualties. Um, so... And the Romanian equipment is not is not quite as bad as inferior as it later 
comes to be, you know, as it later becomes, right? The Soviets are later to introduce better versions of, you know, their tanks and more of them, you know, where in 41, there might be older, you know, smaller tanks, you know, uh, and other, you know, equipment that the Romanians are able to deal with, right? With, with, with through various means, even if they don't have anti-tank guns, they can use, you know, grenades or improvise other things. By 43 or 44, the the Soviets are, you know, those old kind of outdated, you know, equipment is being replaced as the the USSR, the USA, the UK help rearm the, 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 the Soviets and the Soviets have time to retrain their men. So, you know, so yeah, the, so I think there's a, it's more complicated than just saying, oh, the remains are, were, were not good. They weren't effective. And then one last caveat is that effective effect, military effectiveness is kind of relative, right? There's certain things that, you know, like uh, political effectiveness of the army, getting money, obtaining resources, right, um, to, if, you know, equip its soldiers. It did, you know, that it's actually very effective at. It had a limited base, you know, and there was corruption, but it's pretty impressive to see how much funding the army actually got um, during like the 1930s and, you know, rearmament efforts. So I think we, there's, you know, effectiveness. We also need to look at those aspects. So um, it, I would say it's more effective than people get credit for, but at the same time, less effect. It is about as it is suffers uh, but f- from being less effective, especially over time um, against the Red Army. That really is such a historian's answer is instead of just yes or no, it's it's complicated. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> um you're talking about you talked before that about the Romanian army. Um, they fought for three years. They went to the Caucasus, uh, all the way to Stalingrad. Whereabouts did Romania actually fight during the Second World War? Um, I ask this because most of the books I've read um, they're they're based about the Holocaust and they focus on the reconquest of Bessarabia and the capture of Edessa, but then they kind of lose interest once the army moves further east. Which major campaigns were the Romanians involved in? So the kind of the first campaign, the first season of campaigning in '41, Romania is actually part of an important secondary front in the south, right? Um, which is what we're more, uh, which is more covered in Holocaust literature. The liberation, or probably better said, reconquest of northern Bukovina and Bessarabia. Um, after they crossed the 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 Dniester uh, River. They actually operate primarily in southern Ukraine, um, and then Crimea. They, there's the they participate in the Battle of the Uman Pocket, the Fall of Odessa, and also what's sometimes called the Battle of the Sea of Azov, which is um, on the Nagoy Steppe. Actually, it's north of the of the actual sea, of course, or on land. And these are kind of the important battles of that campaign. Um, the, the second year of campaigning in 1942, the Romanians are actually on the primary front. Of uh, you know, this is where the main thrust is um, for the German um, summer offensive, and and before even before the the summer offensive, they play really key roles in uh, these spring battles that allow the Germans to stabilize not only stabilize the line, but inflict some heavy losses on the Soviets at um, Izium in southern Ukraine and uh, Kirch. Um, in um, in Crimea, and both these battles that happen almost simultaneously, the Romanians 
without the Romanian help, the Germans probably couldn't have pulled them off. Um, they don't play the main role, but without the the Romanians' extra manpower, it, it it would have been difficult for the Germans to achieve the success where they inflict uh, more losses on the enemy than they take, which then sets up for a big summer offensive that the Romanians uh, take part in as they th- thrust into southern Russia and the Caucasus. Also at this time, the Romanians help with the fall of Sevastopol and then culminating in the Battle of Stalingrad at the end of the year, where there's a, you know two full field armies, um, not counting other troops that are fighting in the Caucasus as well. Then in 1943, the Romanians, this part of the front, it becomes kind of tertiary, um, and the Romanians get locked into this kind of defensive bubble uh, called the Kuban Bridgehead, uh, which Hitler had these wild ideas that we're going to hold on to this and you know, reattack in the Caucasus. Um, and, but that, you know, is kind of a pipe dream. Um, and eventually they're forced to, forced to withdraw, uh, withdraw from the Kuban bridgehead into Crimea. And then in 1944, you can argue that again, uh, Romania is on kind of uh, an, an important kind of secondary part of the front in Ukraine, you know, in Southern Ukraine. And, and especially because now it's defending its own borders. Um, and you have the first um, Yashkishino offensive in uh, March, April, and then finally the second one in August that um, triggers Romania's uh, final, final collapse and uh, the royal coup that then uh, took Romania out of the access. Um, several times so far, you've mentioned atrocities and the Holocaust. There seems to be quite a bit of confusion about exactly what role Romania and soldiers in particular played in the Holocaust. Can you tell us exactly a bit about how Romanian soldiers were involved? Yeah, so I think it's important to kind of parse some um, some terms here about what exactly is a soldier, right? And I'm focusing on actual soldiers, right? These are trained for combat, not all of them have to be frontline soldiers. You know, there's support guys who, you know, are basically supply troops or anti-aircraft guys and, you know, soldiers in the rear. Um, but gendarmes, right, they're not technically soldiers. They're militarized police. Some of them are assigned as military uh, military police, actually, to police, you know, the actual soldiers, right, to enforce some kind of um, order in the rear. Um, and safeguard it from attacks by, you know, enemy troops or fifth columnists. And then there's gendarmes that are under the Ministry of the Interior. Um, and so I think it's important to point this out, that there's kind of these three waves, especially as it pertains to the worst um, parts of the Holocaust in uh, Bessarabia, Buk- northern Bukovina, and in Transnistria, right? That you have this wave, first of the frontline soldiers, then of the gendarmes who are military police who are f- closely following behind the soldiers, but who haven't, you know, or, you know, their kind of mandate is to enforce some kind of order. And then you have the final uh, uh, group, the gendarmes under the Ministry of the Interior. And these are the ones who have expressed orders to, quote, cleanse the terrain, end quote, of Jews. And so... I think a lot of the atrocities committed by the actual soldiers, the frontline troops going through, um, 
are kind of what we, you know, one historian has said is kind of hot-blooded atrocities. These are usually triggered by, you know, being in combat, uh, taking some kind of losses, and then blaming it on, um, you know, some kind of likely suspect, which in the remaining case is almost always Jews, but there are others um, that they also accuse of being, you know, communist fifth columnists, you know, Ukrainians, Russians. Um, and so these soldiers will then often, you know, they will take some casualties and they'll then round up Jews after they take a, a village or something and shoot them in reprisal, right? you know, a blaming them. Then the gendarmes acting as military police show up and they will like take possession of the survivors who are often been gathered together you know, often being uh, into like a schoolhouse or a synagogue being kind of used as impromptu jails. And the gendarmes, you know, these military police, they're trying to kind of reassert some kind of order. But they also have orders, you know, to kind of to discourage, you know, enemy partisans by executing um, hostages, you know, in, in, in case of attack. So they do get involved in executions and some of them use the opportunity to loot and rape, you know, especially since many of the survivors are women and children because soldiers, the frontline soldiers tended, especially at the beginning to target more men, seeing them as kind of a legitimate target um, and less women, although women and children became targets as well. Um, And then after these guys have moved on, then you have the gendarmes who have had, you know, conferences and planning and orders to cleanse the train, they come in and then they will, they, they kind of start a new uh, wave of atrocities. Um, so it's interesting. So frontline troops, they probably, as if we're, and I kind of have to combine the soldiers and the military police, the gendarmes serving as military police, and even kind of the, the, the rest of the gendarmes coming in, it's, there's that kind of initial wave and I kind of include these numbers. It's hard to pull these apart. Um, I think there we have to be more research, but I think there's something about, you know, 64,000 um, Jews who are executed by bullets um, kind of in this, in these first kind of three waves of soldiers, military police, and then gendarmes. Um, and before, you know, in the, in the initial kind of sweep through, uh, Bessarabia and northern Bukovina. And then later on, there's the deportations, and that's all done by um, the gendarmes. Um, so there's kind of can be there's these kind of uneven atrocities where soldiers take the initiative in beatings, looting, rape, shooting. Their appearance often would trigger locals, civilians to k- kind of get involved and start, you know, using their presence to uh, uh, steal or point out other Jews. Um, and so, but then it's really important that there's a clear difference between anti-Semitic violence in northern Bukovina, Bessarabia, and even uh, later in Transnistria versus in the rest of Ukraine and Crimea. Because that early territory, this is Romanian, you know, it's claimed by the Romanians, the Germans aren't contesting it. Um, the locals... Um, so the Romanians feel like they can do whatever they want in this territory. Whereas once they move into Ukraine, that's claimed by the Germans. And so you have to, they have to kind of respect what the Germans um, want to done. And the Germans are demanding more discipline 
um, especially when it, and the SS actually, because they don't trust the Romanians, even um, kind of tell them hands off with Jews that Jewish policy is an SS thing. And so Romanians are supposed to turn over Jews um, to the SS for, for, you know, which they know is going to be execution. Uh, but there are still plenty of reports in um, of Romanian soldiers shooting Jews in the rest of Ukraine, especially while they were occupying the area between um, the Bug River and the Dnieper River from October 41 to February 42. That, in addition to Transnistria, was under Romanian military occupation. Um, and then, of course, in Crimea, they're there from October 41 all the way to April 44, and they're deeply involved in, as as is the German army. They don't do a lot of direct shooting, even though we do find massacres from time to time, but they will support the SS in rounding up Jews, providing security during, you know, roundup actions um, in that. So there's that interesting kind of dynamic there of you know, that initial kind of waves of violence. And then that, then once Transnistria gets turned over, that adds to more violence because once that's under Romanian control now, they can decide what to do there, which leads to these deportations and more executions. But that's done by, you know, gendarmes, uh, Ukrainian police, SS troops. The soldiers have now moved on, right? And the military, the gendarmes, actually military police, they're further away. And they've been kind of constrained by German policy in just how violent they can be. And also importantly, uh, military operations become more intense. And as they leave and cross into Ukraine, there's just less time to commit atrocities. Soldiers need to be marching or fighting. And this is when the Romanian army reintroduces flogging. And there's this very clear kind of reassertion of discipline that they relaxed in um, northern Bukovina and Bessarabia to allow soldiers to commit all these atrocities. And then once they get into Ukrainian territory, they reassert and even go further by introducing flogging, reintroducing flogging to reassert discipline so that they can focus on winning the war. Um, and so there's that interesting dynamic, but they're involved in the Holocaust. Um, and then all the way, especially into Crimea, um, they're it's a they're a little less involved in southern Russia and the Caucasus, um, in part because a lot of Jews have evacuated from those areas. And there's fewer Jews in those areas because you're outside the Pale of Settlement. Um, but there's they be, but the Romanians then also get involved in anti-partisan warfare that targeting civilians, you know, and prisoners of war in those areas. So you argue in the book that committing atrocities and mass murder was directly linked to soldiers' morale and motivation. Can you explain a bit what you mean by that? Yeah, so to begin with motivation, right? Motivation is kind of underlying. It's the, it's the foundation of, of why, why soldiers do certain things. And I'm arguing that, it's, that there's a strong ideological motivation, a strong ideological foundation Right, that's wrapped up in um, nationalism, religion, anti-Semitism, and anti-communism, right? And so that this is why soldiers signed up. This is why soldiers put up with the with 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 being in the army. It's why soldiers risk their lives, and 
this is why soldiers commit atrocities as well. You know, this underlying thing on top of motivation is morale and morale is a very slippery um, uh, subject. It's hard to define. Um, some would say it's kind of like the mood of the army. Um, and I've seen some really good definitions, but the problem is that officers and soldiers don't always use those definitions. Uh, morale is kind of a shorthand. Um, and so there's a lot of, but the Romanian army is, you know, trying to track it. And it's pretty clear that um, soldiers will commit atrocities even when they have bad morale. But the worst atrocities that happen are at the start of the war when morale is highest. Um, not just for soldiers on the ground, but officers, generals, and perhaps most importantly, um, uh, Antonescu and his ministers. And I think, you know, all of that is there was kind of sense of elation and confidence that they were going to they were going to win the war. And so while soldiers that encourages them to, you know, on the bottom level to take some initiative, it then encourages up the up the ranks. Right. That even bigger things like cleansing the terrain, you know, of, of all Jews can be undertaken. And I think that's really and that then pushes you know, from the top, this, you know, soldiers realize there's even more that they can get away with when it comes to Jews. Um, and I, th I find it very interesting that later on in the war, as the, as the tide turns and um, they start realizing they're losing, they, this more kind of depressed morale as it, as it ebbs, there's fewer atrocities against Jews, in part because the Jews have already been killed but even in Transnistria, where there's still Jewish survivors up until 43, 44, when Romanian soldiers like come through, there's some soldiers retreating from who've withdrawn from Stalingrad in 43 and they get drunk and they've gone and started shooting up the ghetto. At this time, they're immediately stopped. You know, they, they kill one Ukrainian and wound a Jew, um, but there's very quickly stopped and there's no pogrom that's allowed. And I think this is once again. The motivation, right, is still there. These soldiers still hate Jewish communism. They still f feel the war is worth it. They've gotten drunk because they're they realize they're losing, and they go to take you know vengeance on some of these you know innocents that they can target. But the higher levels now, because of you know their morale is lower, they now are concerned about being put on tri trial for atrocities. They're more concerned about you know discipline in the ranks. They're not going to let this, you know, turn into a pogrom like they would have in 1941. So you've described a lot of brutality against Jews, especially in 1941. Um, but what about other minority groups? Did they rape and murder Ukrainians or Russian non-combatants and people in the Caucasus? And what about Roma or gypsies, as they called them uh, in during the war? So, yeah, there are Jews... Romanian soldiers knew they could do anything with Jews. Um, and so we have the worst uh, kind of treatment and the most widespread. But there was often an association of Ukrainians and Russians or even Lipovins, uh, these um, Russian Orthodox old believers um, who are religious minority, which is to me kind of insane that they would assume that these, you know, religious nonconformists would support 
the atheist Soviet state, but that's a whole other issue. <laughs> but and the interesting thing about the Ukrainians is that because they weren't completely unlike Jews, you could do anything to. There was both Romanian pressure and then also German pressure against committing too many atrocities, especially against Ukrainians. Um, the Germans wanted to try to woo them to support them and break them off against the Russian majority. Um, and so we actually have a lot of court martial records where like uh, some of them beginning because of German military police investigations of Romanian atrocities against um you know, local Ukrainians, but there's also just Romanian police. And um, especially as they pass through Bessarabia and they realize they need more discipline, um, certain generals like Petre Dumitrescu, the commander of General Petre Dumitrescu, the commander of Romanian Third Army, he becomes very disciplinarian. He's all for flogging soldiers. And he even threatens to shoot soldiers for raping uh, or murdering Ukrainians. And um, Vasile Skarnich, uh, the major in, uh, in charge of a mountain battalion, in his uh, diary, he records having um, soldiers who raped a Ukrainian girl, a teen, like a preteen or young teenager. He assembled his battalion and had them flogged, not with the traditional belt strap, but with shovels, uh, entrenching tools. Um, Ouch. Um, and forced, you know, and to the point where like the mother of the rape girl was begging for it to stop. And Skarnich said, no, he like, they received the full 25, um, uh, stripes with these shovels. Um, so yeah, so we actually have this evidence because, because the Romanians themselves have this more cultural affinity. Ukrainians are also Eastern Orthodox Christians, right? They often see themselves as crusading crusaders um so there is still violence against um uh soviet civilians but it, there's less toleration for it so we get more reports about it in in court martial records uh although i'm sure still a lot of it still uh, a lot of it still wasn't reported um and when it came if if they were accused of being partisans remaining soldiers were completely willing to execute local Soviet civilians or burn down their villages, you know, if they, if they were ordered to, because there was a partisan or alleged partisan danger. When it comes to Roma, um, I have not seen any evidence that Romanian soldiers targeted uh, gypsies, particularly for atrocities, um, whether in Bessarabia or further in Ukraine. Um Romanian soldiers, you know, obviously had racist ideas and feelings about gypsies, especially that they were supposedly cowards. Uh, I've had veterans tell me, you know, stories about how, like, you know, they they you basically that how how cowardly the Roman the gypsies were, and that they all served as you know musicians or the the regimental barber, you know, and they you know would put a string on the the trigger their rifle and put the rifle around a corner and pull the strings so they didn't have to expose themselves. But I haven't seen any evidence of them being targeted by frontline Romanian soldiers. I mean, that's different from the Antonescu regime deporting uh, sorry gypsies from Romania to Transnistria in 1942, you know, targeting nomadic gypsies and, and so-called criminal ones. Um, but interestingly, even in that case, 
the Romanian army actually uh, tries to limit that. Uh, they're concerned basically about manpower, right? And so nomadic gypsies, they feel like aren't contributing. You can't draft them, right? Because they're moving around. You don't have their addresses. And then criminal gypsies, like, do we want those kind of gypsies? And so they don't act to protect those, but the Romanian army actually tries to ratchet back the Romanian gendarmerie's um, plans to deport gypsies from Romania in 1942 um, in order to preserve those soldiers as you know, those men as, and their families, you know, as soldiers, as possible draftees. Um, and they have some, they actually put pressure on when it becomes kind of gets out of control and local, you know, authorities and gendarme commanders start deporting everybody, including even, you know, gypsy soldiers, right, in uniform, who happen to be home on leave, the army is very upset about that. Um, so there's, it, there might be something to say about some, there's still racism in the army, but there is a, some solidarity with uh, gypsy soldiers in uniform, although that doesn't extend to the fact of the families of who have been deported. The Romanian army basically allows, or it does not help if a soldier comes back from Stalingrad and finds his family's been deported, the Romanian army, his officer, he's like his superior officer might help, you know, write a petition, try to like get some redress and save his family from the camps. But the institutional army basically says, this is a Romanian gendarmerie problem. You have to go through the gendarmes and kind of um, uh, wash their hands of the issue. So it's 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 a it's a very mixed and complicated um, relationship of gypsy soldiers in uniform, Romanians' treatment of gypsies, of, of Roma in so in occupied territory versus in at, back at home in Romania itself. Yeah, that really complicates the very black and white story you get um, in the Holocaust literature about the deportations and the mass murder of of Roma. Um, you spend a lot of time in this book talking about propaganda. What what do they talk about? Like, what are the themes does the army focus on in its propaganda to its own soldiers? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very fascinating because I think a lot of times in previous studies, they've kind of mentioned propaganda, but not actually gone into what the content is. Um, and, of course, as I actually read through uh, four or five major publications and in a few more like maybe a half dozen like short-lived or smaller ones but there's the century um which is the main kind of flagship newspaper there's the soldier which is a new one that's edited with german help it's pretty obvious and it's it's interesting that it's it's more anti openly anti-semitic it has more kind of vulgar uh, it uses the word yid you know where you know, Jidov, of whereas the set the century was kind of this more kind of elitist anti-Semitism. They t- it talks about you know kind of the myth of Judeo Bolshevism, but it doesn't call Jews kikes, right? It doesn't use that word, which is in the other one, you know, which is in like Soldatul, the the soldier. There's the Echo of Crimea, which is a newspaper that was published in Crimea for soldiers serving there. Um, there was an illustrated magazine, Armata, the army. And then, a, uh, then really interestingly, I found a, um, wasn't so much a 
newspaper, but a um, a journal issued to frontline chaplains about with articles and possible topics for sermons and stuff like that. And, you know, kind of the first and foremost, right, is holy war, right? This message of crusading, you know, of this Christian crusade against this godless atheist enemy. Um, from the very beginning, there's Soviet atrocity propaganda, you know, once again, kind of, uh, and there were, you know, they did uncover, you know, some Soviet atrocities of Romanians who are being deported or ethnic Romanians who being shot or, you know, before the, the Soviets left, leaving bodies, you know, buried in areas. Although there's also rumors that kind of outstrip the reality. You know, it's it's kind of suspicious to me when a lot of these rumor reports say that the the victims of the Soviet secret police are buried in the Jewish cemetery. That there's something that rings false, that this is more rumor than reality. But those atrocities are said from the very beginning as like, we need to save our brethren from these this sort of behavior. And then it becomes kind of doubled down, tripled down later on as look at how vengeful the Soviets are. And and when you look at the messages of Judea of this proposed of uh, existence of Judeo Bolshevism, you don't just read Soviet as just Soviet, right? It's not a this is a you know the this ide- you know, Marxist Leninist ideology. Soviet in the title can, is very is a also a dog whistle for Jewish. So there's this idea of the Soviet Jewish vengeance, right? And so they emphasize that the Soviets are committing atrocities, you know, when they retake the Caucasus. And there's even a very blunt um, headline that says, like, the Soviets will never forgive, right? And they don't have to talk about the fact that the Romanian army committed atrocities, um, not just against, you know, Soviets, but also Jews, which in the Romanian mind, right, those, you know, even murdering, you know, Jews is, this, you know, in Romanian Jews, is the same as like murdering the Soviets because those are the supposed masters of this atheist state. And then of course, lots of territorial claims, you know, kind of, you know, reminding soldiers, Hey, we might've reconquered Bessarabia and Bukovina, but we'll lose it if we don't, don't destroy the Soviet army. And Hey, if we keep fighting, we'll probably gain Transnistria. There's, uh, they also talk about other ethnic Romanians that they find in Crimea and the Caucasus. So it's like we need to liberate these from the Bolshevik yoke, is how they usually talk it. They usually put it the Bolshevik, you know, the, the yoke of Bolshevism, this oppressive regime. And so even with the territorial, you know, argument, it still is that, you know, we need to keep this territory or the Soviets will come back. And not just that the Soviets will come back and take back what they what they had taken in 1940, but the Soviets will come back and take all of Romania and they're going to bring Soviet Jewish vengeance and they're going to bring communism and destroy the family, you know, just, you know, that they're going to destroy the, the home and the church. And there's, you know, so it's never as narrow as some of the historians have argued that, Oh, the propaganda just talks about, we're getting our Bessarabia back, you know. So the the propaganda is almost always talking about this bigger idea of the threat of Jewish Bolshevism. You mentioned a minute ago that this is a holy war, um, and it's in the title of the book, Romania's Holy War. What do you mean by that? Why was World War Two more holy than World War One, or 
um, earlier wars? Well, so first off, this is what the propaganda of the era called it. So I'm not just plucking that and saying, oh, this is kind of sums up the propaganda. They repeated the idea of Rizboilsfund, right? It means this holy war. Um, and interestingly, they actually did use the term in the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 to 1878. They called it a holy war, right? And I think this is important, right? Because that war was against the Ottoman Empire, right? So against these heretics. And I, I, you know, this term isn't used quite as much in World War One. You know, the the World War One. You know, you're fighting other Christians over territory. It's harder to bless it as there are still, you know priests that will bless the war as like a, a righteous cause for Romanians. But um, the Second World War, I think, has that same idea that the enemy now is just out of is, is, is not even human. Right They're You know, in the in the in the earlier war against the Ottomans, they're heretics. In this one, they're the atheist Jews. So it's, it makes the enemy. It reminds them that reminds Romanians that you're not just fighting a kind of ho-hum you know, squabble over territory, right? This isn't just, you know, the 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 second Balkan War of 1913, right, which Romania fought in. It's not just some land grab, you know, that this is a holier, righteous, you know, a, a, a campaign against a devilish, you know, enemy. Um, and so um, this goes to show just uh, that... The Romanian, the Romanian Orthodox Church blessed this war, and if I mentioned the um, the frontline chaplains, and they speak this way, and they make the connections between Jews and uh, communism very clear in their sermons. Um, and I haven't researched the church at large, but it supported the regime, the Antonescu regime, and it backed this war to the hilt. What I had studied more is the. Um, uh, the efforts of patriarch uh, of uh, sorry, uh, military bishop um, Partneriye Chilpron. Uh, he was, I think, given a, a rank of brigadier general, and he was in charge of recruiting um, chaplains, of issuing that um, journal, collecting reports, and overall, kind of, you know, you know, making sure that. Uh, Romanian priests on the front in uniform were supplying soldiers with extra, you know, kind of propaganda because they're not just talking about, you know, fighting for the cross. They're also talking about Jewish Bolshevism. So these so these these chaplains are out there on the front line, handing out prayer books um, and crosses, overseeing. Um, um, burials, but also conducting conferences and, you know, not even just, so they, they have their sermons, but they also will go out and have a conference. And they almost in some ways acting like Red Army political officers, uh, which is kind of ironic that, you know, the political officers in Red Army are seen as terrible. And one of their main duties was doing, you know, propaganda. It's kind of, you know, they actually have a fairly good working relationship with the Soviet commanders. And one of the things they did was kind of deal with morale and propaganda. In a very similar way, these chaplains are out there also trying to do that. I, um, with and with the uh, Romanian soldiers, even these rehabilitation soldiers, I found a very interesting report where the chaplain writes in saying how he greets every group of replacements 
who are these rehabilitation soldiers and gives them a speech about how, you know, Antonescu has taken, you know, pity on them to allow them to redeem themselves and that they have this opportunity to fight against this, you know, terrible thing of Jewish Bolshevism. Um, So the Romanian Orthodox Church, you know, uh, overall supports the regime. And then this military bishopric is deeply involved in spreading those same uh, propaganda ideas, reinforcing that ideology and um, convincing soldiers that this war is valuable. And it's, you know, that it's, it's, it's necessary and it's against this really terrible enemy that's much greater than, you know, the Hungarians, right? The Hungarians are Christians, you know, we don't like them. We eat different foods and, but, you know, they respect property. They're still Christians. Romanians lived under them for decades and they remember that. They, they didn't enjoy it, but this new regime, this Jewish communist regime is just seen as completely debauched and evil and, you know, you know will destroy everything that's good. So this is a pretty big book. Um, what's special about it is it brings together military history with histories of the Holocaust which up until now historians have always talked about separately, um, and you show they're part of the same story. You also give us the opinions and the experiences of rank-and-file soldiers. You talk about Roma soldiers and women, and you explore the role of the Orthodox Church in depth. What haven't you done? What do you think there still remains to be written about the Second World War? What questions are still unanswered that people need to research in the future? You know, I think this... In a lot of ways, I think I'm barely scratching the surface here. There's so much more work to be done. I mean, when it if it comes to let's say just more traditional military history, you know, I think there needs to be research into like you know tactics and you know as you mentioned about effectiveness, like how effective was the Romanian army at different times in the war. I have some kind of dim guesses and inferences that I've been able to make, but there needs there's a whole project in there to delve into that. I also think, you know, some of these battles, the Siege of Odessa, the, the Romanians at Stalingrad, the Kuban Bridgehead, those deserves whole books, you know, you know, just standalone works to get into the, all the detail um, and understanding of how the fighting unfolded. Um, and I think a really interesting topic would be, you know, once again, kind of in the, in the last here of this kind of operational military stuff would be, um you know, how the Romanian army, how successful was it at adopting German doctrine? Um, I've, I've, I found, you know, translated German manuals um, from fighting tanks to fighting partisans, you know, so how does that work its way? How does that kind of knowledge transfer from the Germans to the Romanians work? You know, how effective is it? And then in a wider scope, like kind of a war and society aspect, there is so much more that needs to be done, especially on the home front. I mean, Romania was, you know, a neutral state, an Axis belligerent, and then occupied by the Soviet Union. I mean, that's three very different stories um, that I think have only been told superficially. Um, How did an agricultural country deal with an industrialized war, right? This is a hugely important thing I think no one's talked about. And a major part of this would be investigating women on the home front, right? Is there this similar, you know, you know, dynamic of women kind of being called to serve more and being promised, you know, uh, more rights in the future. Well, the thing is, Romania, it's not industrialized, right? So there's few, there's, you know, there's actually a lot of exemptions. So many of the men, the workers stay home, 
right? So there's, there, you know, while yes, sure some are, co are conscripted, you know, so how many women actually went into work in labor in factories? How did it, how did this change the the peasant society? How does change like the village with all the men gone? You know, there were introduction of, of tractors, you know, by the Germans to kind of provide for the men being gone. Like, you know, how were women involved in this? You know, how did, you know, were they promised different things by this very conservative regime? I don't think no one's touched that. I mean, that's a huge, giant, you know, um, blank slot, blank uh, space that needs to be filled. Or with refugees. There's a whole book about refugees. I mean, you have Poles coming in in 1939 um, and Jews escaping from Poland. You have Romanians that then, you know, in 1940 that evacuate and flee from either Soviet or Hungarian occupations. And then you have, you know, then you have more refugees in 1944. These are, you know, including, you know, uh, Russians and Ukrainians and even Jews who have survived the Holocaust in Transnistria all coming back into Romania in the spring of, you know, 1944. No one's looked at how that has affected politics in the, in, and really, there's no politi real political. I mean, there's, you know, we kind of just assume, oh, Antonescu, you know, ran the country. And how do politics actually work? You know, even in dictatorship, there's still political movements. I think there's, um, and I guess finally, oh, not finally, but I've, uh, an economic history. I mean, we know nothing about how well, you're talking about efficiency of the army. How well did Romania contribute economically? You know, we have a lot about oil and food deliveries, but like, you know, what kind of production did they have? You know, where did that food go? Was Romania net asset? You know, what about, you know, rationing, all that kind of stuff. No one knows. That's, nothing's been written on that. And then finally about the Holocaust, I think there's still so much to be done. Um, especially in the, we have so much descriptive um, work that's been done. We know the basic broad outlines, especially of 1941. And the winter of 1941-42. After that, our knowledge, especially of Jews surviving in Transnistria from 1942 to 44, is almost nil. We know so little about the camp system, how it functioned, you know, uh, what Jewish experience was like there, how Jews, some of them were repatriated to Romania. What was that experience like? What was it about the the Jewish aid um, committee that was set up? I mean. There's so much about that uh, that's on the ground that so much has been effort has been poured into chronicling the atrocities and for good reason, um, you know, in 1941. We but we that means we have this giant you know um, missing gaping hole about well there's lots of Jews that survived that first winter you know in Transnistria and you know so what was you know we know it was harsher. And that's basically all I can say. It's harsher than it was in Romania, but I think there's been some recent work about Jewish labor battalions in Romania that's starting to show that there's so much more that needs to be done on the Holocaust as well. And so those are just some of the things I, I think of that really need to be done in on Romania in the Second World War. <laughs> that's exhausting just thinking about all that work. <laughs> I know. And I'm hoping that other people take up some of that. There's a great... Uh, uh, I know someone who's working on Romanian women. Um, she's graduating. She's working at the University of Bucharest, uh, I think part-time now. But they're, you know, are, you know, like Dallas Mickelbacher, he's doing stuff on Jewish labor. And, 
Yeah, I think there, you, w- give us some time, and I think there'll be other people doing it. So you're talking about language skills. What you really need is for the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints to send some more people to Romania and get them learning the language um, <laughs> so they can become scholars. Pretty much. academics. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I feel like I understand the book a lot better now than I did an hour ago. Um, and I look forward to reading some of this new research that you promise is coming out from um, younger scholars. But thanks a lot, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work. Well, thank you for this opportunity to discuss my work and to you know give a give a plea for other people to uh, do do more work on this. And um, I hope everyone else that's listening has enjoyed this, and um, hopefully you can get a copy of my book and uh, get into the details. Great. Have a great day.